Welcome back, creeps. What's up, y'all? Happy New Year. It's, it's 2022. Oh, yeah. When this comes out, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we're not going to fuck around too much because this is a juicy one. This is the one that I was supposed to have done last week, but then the book arrived. Well, no, I ordered the book too late, to be honest. And so we got delayed. But in the meantime, I do want to shout out our listener, Annie, in Bristol, because she sent us a lovely message last week. And um, it was just really nice. Her friend, Kat, I believe, sent her the Lycanthropy episode. Mm-hmm. And she says she's been hooked ever since. Aww. And I was like, wow, of all the episodes to get <laughs> to reel her in with, I was very impressed with the lycanthropy. <laughs> anyway, they'll say, oh, yeah, but we really appreciated that message, though. And also, at the top of the show, don't forget you can rate us now on Spotify. So please, oh, pretty please, yeah, go ahead and give us a little L five star rating there. Yeah. And if you don't like us, it doesn't mean we suck, it means we're not for you. <laughs> so keep your bad reviews <laughs> keep your bad ratings keep them moving yeah move on move on <laughs> yeah but no, find, and, we ho- and we hope you find something you like <laughs> all right and dulce has a tarot card for us yes i do sometimes we remember things yep all right so today's card is king of wands bitches <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right so this is a really good card okay okay So the message is, sit down and think about your goals today. You have a very clear understanding of yourself, what you're capable of, and what you want in your future. Use that energy to get intentional. Not only can you set great goals today, you also have the energy to start working towards them. So call upon that person within you that knows how to get shit done. Because that is the energy for today, is getting shit done. All right. I like that. Very, very positive. Do your to-do list. Get that shit done. Mm Mm-hmm. All righty. Oh, in other news, my little sister had her baby. Yeah. So we now have a new member of the family. A new member of the family, little baby Sophia. Little baby creep. she is perfect. (laughs) Yeah, little creep. We just got a little video of her snoring, and it's delightful. Her eyes are as black as an abyss. Yeah, she literally looked like a little black-eyed kid Yeah, when she first came out. I was yeah. like, whoa. <laughs> we didn't even care. No, <laughs> love her anyway. Yep. <laughs> All right, and without further ado, this is not your typical weekly creep story, okay? There is no ghosts or aliens, and there's really only a smattering of murder here and there. But the murder that is here is fucking awful nonetheless. This is more a tale of misfortune, stupidity, and downright bad luck. Mm. So today we are taking a trip back in time to December 1927 to a little old place known as Wichita Falls. That's in Texas. I don't actually know how big or small it was back then, but anyway. Big moves were happening in 1927. Charles Lindbergh had made the very first solo flight across the Atlantic. The first talking picture was released. The jazz singer. Oh, what they used to call the talkies. The talkies. Go (laughs) on to the talkies. And Dr. Seuss was born. Oh, no shit. Yeah, a boatload of other stuff happened too. You know, whatever. We won't be talking about any of that shit. So (laughs) today we're talking about a good old-fashioned stick-em-up bank robbery. 
and the masterminds behind one of the most unique heists ever carried out. Oh. So let's get started. Okay. We have Marshall Ratliff, brains of the operation. Marshall and his brother Lee had some experience robbing banks. They had held up a bank in Valera in Coleman County and made it all the way to Abilene before they got caught. Abilene today is a quick one hour drive from Valera, but I'm sure back in the 1920s it was, you know, probably felt like a, a lot further. I believe it's pronounced Abilene. Abilene? 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 Okay. The two brothers were there spending their newfound earnings with some lovely ladies when the Valera sheriff came rolling up on them and caught them in the act. Oh, God. Yeah. As far as I know, they were caught with their pants down. Talk about a stick them up. Wee. (laughs) (laughs) And they spent two years, quote, behind the walls. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So that's all timey lingo for prison. (laughs) And they were actually in Huntsville. No sh- oh, no shit. Yeah, yeah that yeah. fucking gel is so old. Yeah. So they stayed there for two years and then they were paroled after, thanks to, like, I think some governor did, like, a special plea for them and, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were to be on their best behavior and whatever. Yeah. But Lee, the brother, didn't last too long before he got locked up again. Marshall managed to keep his nose clean long enough that Lee went to jail before him, basically. Okay. And they both ended up in Wichita Falls looking for work and met up with a guy by the name of Henry Helms. And Helms was another of Huntsville's alumni. And he got them a room in a house. The house was owned by a Midge Tellet. Good old-fashioned name there. She was a no-nonsense lady who knew how to handle herself and knew how to keep secrets. They stayed in the house with her, her husband Freeman, and their daughter Reba, who was 15 years old. It was definitely an odd little arrangement. Midge knew that the guys were ex-cons, but I think the general rule was don't bring trouble to my door and we'll be all right. Yeah. Freeman didn't seem too keen on the idea, but I guess like he just liked the extra money from lodging the rooms out or whatever. And Midge was definitely the boss. <laughs> Bobby Hill. Shut okay. up. Yeah. Name is actually Robert Hill. Bobby is a really sad character in this story. Oh, I'll okay. Say. Yeah. So that's what I was saying to you today. Who I actually picture in my head is Dale from King of the Hill. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I remember now. But yeah. So anyway, it's a really sad situation. His dad died when he was just a baby. And then his mom died too, leaving him orphaned at uh, 10 years old. And from then on, it was just Bobby looking out for Bobby. So he was sent to live at the state training school from ages 11 to 13. And then again from ages 15 to 17. Now, this was a reformatory school, but uh, Bobby hadn't committed any offense like to get him sent there. The superintendent said the reason why he was admitted was because just nobody really knew what else to do with him. That's so sad. Yeah. So he's just this lonely little boy. So I know that his mom remarried, but I don't know what the deal was with his stepdad. Like maybe he just didn't want anything to do with Bobby. Which just makes the story even more sad. Anyway, he had met the Ratliff brothers in Huntsville. And they were all from the same neck of the woods, which is Eastland in okay. Texas. Or Eastland County, I think. And Eastland is a town in Eastland. Something like that. I don't <laughs> fucking know. There's so many names. Texas of, City, Texas. Yeah. like you know what I mean? <laughs> um, So naturally, they all just got along with one another. And when Bobby got out a little bit before the Ratliffs, I thought this was really see- sweet. They actually sent him to live with their mom 
Oh. Yeah, since he didn't have any family of his own. So they were like, well, you can go live at our mom. That's sweet. And he helped her out. She was running a cafe at the time. Mm. So that was like the mom's trade, I guess. She had owned a cafe of her own, sold it up. And he lived with her in Cisco before moving to run a cafe on some oil field. And eventually, when the guys got out of prison and got like proper rooming, he went up to Wichita Falls to, to live with them. But for some reason, when they all moved into Midge Tellett's house, they told her Bobby was just an old friend. And even though the two brothers were open about being ex-cons, they assured her that Bobby was not. Now, I don't know why. I think maybe just because Bobby seemed a bit more innocent or something. Yeah. And I don't know what the story was there, but they were all going under different names, too. So they were secretive, but not at the same time. I wonder if it was one of those things how, like, people who just lie naturally sometimes just lie about the weirdest things. Yeah, maybe that was it. It just comes out, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, maybe. Um, But either way, Midge took a liking to Bobby. And I think she was actually hoping to set him up with Reba, their daughter. Mm -hmm. Now, Reba was only 15, but the guys are in their early 20s. And I guess back then that was kind of... Twas the times. Yeah. Okay, apologies if you guys can hear the <laughs> boom, thum, boom, thum, boom, thum, boom. There's somebody listening to bad music in it. And we live in the hood, okay? A little bit. So I can't tell them to turn it down or I will die. No, I, I don't even know where it's coming from. It could be from the bar down the road. I don't know. But apologies. I'll do my best to talk real loud. <laughs> um, anyway, Midge took a liking, took a shine into Bobby and, you know, she was telling him how sensible Reba was and how intuitive she was, even though she was only young. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Reba trusted Bobby kind of gave Midge the go ahead to be like, okay, well, he must be a good guy. So Midge was trying to convince Bobby to ditch the two Ratliff brothers that he was so much smarter, so much more polite. But Bobby's self-image or self-worth was so much less than that, that he actually snapped And he was like, he confessed to her. He was like, I'm no good. I'm just like the others. I'm an ex-con too. And like, you can't tell me that I'm not worth anything because I'm just a worthless ex-con. Yeah. I was born a criminal and I'll die a criminal, basically. And this was like his outlook of himself for his whole life growing up. Yeah. But at the same time, he was quite honorable and like a good dude at the heart of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's so strange. Anyway, he just felt that his road had been paved for him ever like since a he was a kid. self-fulfilling prophecy kind of deal. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just thought that was really sad. But what did Midge say? She literally was, like, shocked. She was like, oh. Oh, well, this okay. changes everything. No, she didn't even. She was just, like, shocked into silence. Oh. But she also didn't deny the fact that, yeah, you're once a criminal, always a criminal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that she don't want him for his, for her daughter no more? Basically, yeah. Oh, but it no, was like a, an offset kind of thing. Like, they just never spoke of it again. Oh, okay. So Lee Ratliff, like I mentioned earlier, got arrested for something while they were living with the Tellets. Mm-hmm. And although I don't know what he was arrested for, I know that it wasn't for robbing any bank. Lee had sworn off bank robbing from the last time they got caught, and he told Marshall to do the same. I think he might have gotten locked up for bootlegging. Some, like, old-fashioned thing like that. Because Prohibition ended in the 30s, right? Uh, I'm not actually sure. 
I know that it ended soon after this, but yeah, it was still like bootlegging was a thing. Like the in thing as well for yeah, yeah. criminals in general. Mm-hmm. But either way, with his record, like with his prior record and stuff like that, it was safe to assume that he wasn't going to be getting out anytime soon. Oh. Like he broke bail, Damn. everything. Yeah, like he fucked up. So not long after Lee went away, Marshall came up with a plan or came out with this plan, at least that he had been mulling over for a long time. I think he was probably too afraid to mention it in front of Lee. Yeah. He spoke to Henry Helms. He had a plan to take this bank. It was going to be real easy, but he wanted four men. Bobby was already on board. So Helms told him he knew just the right man. This guy was a fucking pro. So now the ball was rolling. He approached Midge and asked her to pick up some supplies. She was a bit hesitant, but they never told her any details. They just said, all you're going to do is pick up these groceries for us. And that was literally it. Like some first aid stuff, some food and supplies, basically. Oh, and the only reason why they asked her to get it was so they weren't seen like buying the shit. Buying the shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the following day, the three boys met up at the Tellet house. Helms had some bad news. Their heist was just going to have to wait. The professional had the flu and he just wasn't up to it. <laughs> oh, just like that, huh? Yeah, just like that. So I guess even bank robbers have to call out sick sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> this wouldn't do for Marshall, though. They had to take the bank on Friday and there was no two ways about it. Okay. What was so special about that Friday? A drop. It was the day before Christmas Eve. And in Marshall's head, this meant all of the local businesses would be depositing fat stacks before closing oh. up early that afternoon in lieu of Christmas. Is that even the right term? Termin- like like way terminology? To say that? Yeah. It's going to be. Okay. That's so funny because that reminds me of that, of the wet bandits hitting up that toy store in Home the, Alone 2. Literally, that's what I was thinking yesterday when we were watching it. Yeah. The wet bandits. We're, not, guys, we're the sticky bandits now. <laughs> these guys are like the more realistic version of the wet bandits. Oh, trust no me. Shit. Yeah, it's, oh my God. <laughs> anyway, Marshall's convinced. He's like, this bank is going to be full to the brim. And if they wait until next week, their take won't be half as much. So it needs to be mm. the 23rd. Okay. So Henry says, okay, look, fuck it. My brother-in-law, Lewis Davis, he's not like us. Like, he's he's a straight man, mm. right? He's got a family, he's got kids, but he just got let go. And he needs money he's for his family. Yeah. So, like I said, Lewis was a totally straight guy. Mm-hmm. But when the boys told him that they might make as much as 10 grand a piece from this job, Woo. he couldn't say no. That's a lot for them days. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did say that if anything happened to him, they had to make sure that his wife gets his share. And they were like absolutely like thieves honor or whatever that fucking saying is. Ugh, shoddy. No, no, that was a given. Oh, okay. Like anything happens to any of us, your share will go to your, your family. Like, don't worry about that. Lewis also tells him that he has a sister in Moran or Moran. I don't fucking know, which is around 20 miles from Cisco, which is where the bank was. Mm. Okay. So they said they'd stop there on the way down since she was kind of isolated out in the country. Okay. Uh, the sister's name, second name was Elgin. So they just kept, they referred to the, the piece of land as the Elgin lease. It's just <laughs> everything about this is so like old fashioned. But either way, nobody was going to see them there and they'd be safe to post up for the night. Okay. Okay. And with that, the job was back on. So the afternoon of December 22nd, Bobby, Marshall and Henry sat around the back of a gas station drinking Prohibition whiskey. 
moonshine, basically. And it was called like electrolightning. Like, it, it was, Love it. Yeah, like this. Sounds like a cheap cologne. Yeah, like this shit would just make you go blind. Bobby was sensible enough, as always, and he kept his wits about him. He was like, had a couple of drinks, and then he was like, guys, like we have a literally have a job to do tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> like, but Marshall and Henry were starting to get sloppy, so Bobby was like, come on, let's go back to the house, get some food, and try and sober you two up a bit. Mm-hmm. Because the two lads were already starting to get mean. Mm, they were like, you know, who angry. the fuck do you think you are telling uh, us what to do? Yeah, yeah, When they got back to the house, they found Midge sewing a Santa suit for the husband, Freeman, to wear on Christmas Day for oh. the family for pictures and stuff. Yeah. And Freeman, super quiet guy, very uncomfortable in this situation. Like, I don't know how he didn't fucking lose his shit, but he was afraid of them, clearly. Mm-hmm. And basically, he just gets up and leaves. As soon as he sees the guys coming in, probably knowing they were up to no good, like just by the look of them. Yeah. And the smell, probably. Yeah. But this was a bad move because then they started talking shit about him being rude and leaving them. Um, right, who does he think he is? And it's only because we're just a couple criminals. We're not good enough to be in his presence. Oh, my God. This kind of bullshit. And then I think Henry was probably the main instigator because Henry is definitely the meanest of the bunch. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, Henry's a cunt. <laughs> That's interesting because he's he was a go between trying to get these these fellas uh some housing. Yeah, That's right. That's so weird. I know. So Marshall definitely like played into like you know what I mean? Like the two of them played off stir. each other. He was a potster. Yeah, kinda like. So next thing they started asking where Reba was, because it was only now that they realized that they actually hadn't seen the girl. For like the last few days. Okay. Because they've been so preoccupied with this bank job. Right. That they didn't realize that Freeman had actually sent her away a few days beforehand to stay at his sister's house. Because these motherfuckers were living there. Yeah, but like they've been living there all in harmony. And I guess suddenly Freeman was like, I don't like how Reba is acting around the guys now. Oh. And he just didn't want the, like a relationship sparking up. So he was like, nip it in the bud. Sent her away to the sisters. Good and dad. The, yeah, and they were trying to do it on the sly. And like I said, none of them realized for the first few days. And I will just say now that as far as I'm aware, nothing actually happened between any of the guys and Reba. Okay. This was just a preemptive strike on Freeman's behalf. Good good fathering. Yeah, good fathering. Absolutely. Anyway, Marshall put two and two together and starts calling Freeman names, telling him to come back in and just being a dick, like just instigating. Meanwhile, Bobby is trying to keep the peace in the room. And eventually Freeman comes in and is way nicer than I would have expected and than, than I would have been. He tries to play dumb and he's like, cause it had gotten chilly outside and he was putting alcohol in the car, which is, was their antifreeze back in the day. And he comes in smiling, taking his gloves off. And he's like, what's going on, guys? Like, whatever. And like I said, he's playing dumb. He tells them that Reba's over helping his sister with her Christmas tree, you know, because mm-hmm. his sister has kids and Reba can help. There was a bit of back and forth. And then the next thing, Henry has a pistol pointed at Freeman. He's backed up against his own sitting room wall. And Henry starts shooting at his feet like he's fucking Yosemite Sam or something. Yeah. Marshall's just laughing his ass off. Bobby manages to get the gun from from Henry. But Freeman agrees to go and get Reba. He's like, look, let me go get her. Everybody, let's just calm the fuck down. Like, he's literally after blowing holes in the fucking floor of his sitting room. Mm Mm-hmm. And still, he's being a nice guy about it. Mm-hmm. 
when they get back, Marshall tells Midge she's going to have to get that Santa suit finished tonight because he's going to be borrowing it tomorrow. And then the guys took off, left the house. They went to go get a card that they'd been eyeing up for the job. A Buick. Top quality. Not some rust bucket Model T. They get to there. The keys are literally sitting in the ignition. They're like, fucking lovely. This job is going to go perfectly. Yeah. So they drop off Helms back home with his family. And Marshall and Bobby go back to the Tellet's house. Now, Marshall's calmed down and he's sobered up at this point And he does apologize to Bobby. I don't know about Freeman. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they said their goodbyes to Midge and Reba, who were actually quite upset with them leaving. They were like, I, I guess maybe they figured like they might not see them again. And they were like, now you boys be safe. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they had just been shooting at her fucking husband and yeah. father. And they head over. They pick up Henry again. They pick up Lewis and they head to his sister's house when they get to the sister's house they have to sleep on the front lawn in a tent because henry helms was so disliked by lewis's sister's husband that he said that man ain't coming in my house no matter what (laughs) (laughs) so they literally all just like curled up in a fucking tent on the front garden and then the husband robbie left for work real early he like worked on the oil fields or something something real stereotypical (laughs) And when he left, the sister came out and snuck them in the house to feed them. Hmm. Now, she was under the impression that the lads were just going on a good old fashioned bootlegging mission. And even just knowing that she was super concerned for her brother. Mm-hmm. She was like, "Now you don't be going messing with the likes of Henry Helms. Like he's he's nothing but trouble. But at the same time was like, now here, feed up, like make sure you don't go on an empty stomach kind of thing. <laughs> Commit your crowns on an empty stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she was just really caring, like, and uh, Lewis helped her, like, clean up and all that. And then they say goodbye and they make their way down to Cisco. Old man history tour time. Cisco was a town of about 8,000 people back in 1927. It was described as small enough that everybody knew each other but big enough to give farmers' wives a place for some fancy shopping. (laughs) Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, so it was like the hub of a bunch of outlying towns. Mm -hmm. Towns like Dothan and Nimrod and Scranton. Yeah. They all would come in here to do their Christmas shopping. And the Main Street, or what was called the Main Street, was actually Avenue D. And it was like the main thoroughfare and also happened to be where the first national bank was Mm -hmm. 704 avenue d cisco now i did look it up just because i'm a fucking nerd and i think highway six actually runs through avenue d i don't think it's actually called avenue d anymore yeah um okay so i'm i may be slow but lewis's helms's brother-in-law is the one that they're gonna do the job with yeah so now it's lewis henry marshall and dale or bobby Bobby, yeah (laughs) yeah so now the four of the guys are in the car okay four of the guys slept together in the tent i think okay so this next bit is going to sound like a lot of information but just bear with me it'll make sense in a minute okay so the building that the first national bank occupied was originally a retail store okay okay it was a single story building and had two big display windows either side of the front door okay And then they had four smaller windows, which ran along the alleyway on the north side of the building. Okay. 
So they were kind of up a little bit higher, I guess. As you entered the front door, the president of the bank and the cashier had little cubicles on the left side. Okay. Okay. Now, they were just like, you know, waist high marble benches, like not really separated. Like you could literally like just lean over and say hello to them. Just beyond these were the teller cages because they didn't have bulletproof glass back then. So you just had cages where the tellers were. And then at the back of the building, it's a very small building, by the way, there was a bookkeeping room. So the back wall had a little door in it. And when you went through this door into the bookkeeping room, there was another door immediately on your right hand side. That door led outside to a paved alleyway behind the building. Okay. Now, this was an alleyway, but it was a busy alleyway. You could park your car there and people walked up and down it all day. Okay. So it was common practice for someone to walk on into the bank, deposit their check, their cash, whatever, and then just walk on through the back and continue on out into the alleyway. Really? Yeah. That's someone's office you're walking through. Yeah, but because everybody knew each other, oh, I see. they would go in and say hello to the two clerics working in there. And then head out. And then just head on out, yeah. If you didn't understand that, just rewind like 30 seconds and listen to it again. Try it, because I'm doing that mentally. Yeah, I can see. I can hear the... Yeah, if you can see my face, I'm like... So, the plan was for Marshall to enter the bank, dressed as Santa Claus, and while everyone was looking at him... The other tree would just slip in behind into the and get into place completely unnoticed. Okay. Lewis would cover the door. Bobby would take the two guys in their cubicles. And Helms was the experienced wingman. Right. Okay. He was basically like all over the place. He'd just take it as it comes. He would help Marshall wrangle up the others, keep everyone at bay and get the money. Okay. So they let Marshall out, out of the car separately. To make his inconspicuous way down Main Street. Uh-huh. Dressed as Santa. In the midst of December 23rd Christmas shopping. Okay. Kids immediately spotted him. Uh-huh. Started asking him for candy. Asking him which store he belonged to. Some older kids started following him. Convinced that he had pockets full of sweets. And other children begged their parents for a chance to go and say hello to Santa Claus. The parents... We're saying hello and everything. And they were just making a big fucking scene because now all these kids are going, mom, 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 look, there's Santa. Yeah. Everybody, look, it's Santa Claus. Yeah. So he just put on his best, I'm not Marshall Radcliffe voice and tried to walk as quickly as he could without running. So basically Santa power walking through Main Street towards the bank, telling the kids to go ask John D. Rockefeller for gifts in what I can only imagine is an Oscar the Grouch style voice. Okay. He was literally saying, Go ask John D. Rockefeller. He's got all the money. He'll get you gifts. Like shouting, just drawing even more attention to himself. He walked into the bank and the three lads slip in behind him completely unnoticed because everyone was too busy looking at him. The plan worked. Okay. This part of the plan worked. Okay. The cashier, Alex Spears, smiled at him and says, hello, Santa Claus. (laughs) And then realized that one of the men was now brandishing two pistols, one in each hand, at the teller in the cage, telling him to stick him up. Santa stayed quiet for the time being, and nobody was really sure if this was some sort of Christmas prank. But the man holding the gun says, I mean business, big boy. (laughs) And then finally, Santa piped up and said, get that vault open. Big boy was like 
as common as me saying dude or lad or, or guy. All right. So who's holding the guns? Helms and who else? So right now it's just Helms. Oh, okay. He's got two guns pointed at the teller. He's double fisting. And, yeah, he's double fisting like good old fashioned Texan. Good. Okay. So then the door opens again. Uh-huh. And in walks six-year-old Frances Blasengame and her mom, Mrs. Blasengame. Okay. Frances had seen Santa Claus entering the bank from across the street and had reminded her mom that she had promised her that she could speak with him about some very important Christmas business. Okay. So her mom gave in and was like, fine, like, let's go bother the man on his lunch break. Yeah. Because also it was lunchtime. So they had crossed the busy street, especially to see Santa Claus. When they got inside the bank and saw the guys holding guns, poor Francis starts crying and says, they're going to shoot Santa. They're going to shoot him. Oh, my God. Santa didn't have any guns. Right, right, right. He was just standing there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, being Santa Claus. And at this point, her mother had realized what was going on and noticed that Bobby Hill was now blocking the front door and he also had a gun in each hand. Oh. She starts to usher Francis toward the back door and clumsily made it all the way to the little bookkeeping room where the two clerical workers were just going about their business completely oblivious to what was going on outside. The four guys, guns and all, are shouting at the blasting games and each other this whole time Shoot them, get back here, shoot them, put a bullet in her. The, the fact that she made it all the way from the front door all the way to the back, wow. Yeah. And these motherfuckers didn't even shoot. They are freaking out. Lewis is screaming, I was like, get back in here. Helms is telling him, shoot her. And then when she finally reaches the back door, Lewis runs at them, guns drawn, yelling to get back in with the rest of them. And then the door wouldn't open. Suddenly, Mrs. Blasengame realizes that little Francis was pushing on a pull door and says calmly, wait, honey, let mother open the door. (laughs) And off they went. Oh, thank God. Not quite as smoothly as that. She actually had to use Francis to push her through the screen door. Yeah. (laughs) Like as in they broke through the screen door because it was latched. So she just used her daughter as like a battering. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. But the lads just let her go. And carried about their business. Santa gave the teller the order to open the vaults again. And was told that they could actually only open one of the vaults. Because the other one was on a time lock. So they were like, fine, open the fucking one vault then. And they proceeded to clear out the one that they could open. The teller loaded up a potato sack with checks, bonds, papers and a little bit of cash. He was about to start loading coins into the bag when Santa said that's enough. And they headed back out. I guess they didn't want to be weighed down with all the coins. Makes sense. Santa hadn't noticed the literal sacks full of money that the teller had purposely not drawn their attention to. And he also never asked the teller to empty his register, which had somewhere around $5,000 just sitting there. They just wanted what was in the vault. And the teller was like, I'm going to give you what I want to give you. Basically. That's interesting. And Santa and the guys were so concerned with just making a nice casual exit that he wasn't really paying attention to what the teller was doing. Interesting. So no more than four minutes had passed since Santa had stepped foot in the bank. And as they were walking back into the lobby, Santa saw a face staring in through the window of the bank. That big ass display window. big ass fucking windows. They were in full view. And the lads all realized at the same time what, what Santa is looking at. 
And I'm assuming it was Helms because he's the most likely, in my opinion. But someone fired a shot out the window as a warning. Everyone went quiet. Another shot. This one coming from outside in. Mm -hmm. Bobby Hill pipes up then. Sensible Bobby. I'm going to warn them we're armed. He fires four shots into the ceiling of the bank. Nothing. Absolute silence again. Then came the reply. A cacophony of gunfire erupted. Whoa. Bullets rained in on the bank from the big front windows and the side windows alike. <gasps> the guys were surrounded. Whoa. You see, what happened was, uh-huh. when Mrs. Blasingame left, she didn't just Leave. go about her business yeah. or disappear off the face of the earth like some computer game NPC. She walked all the way to the police station, which was guess how far? Just across the alleyway. Shut up. Okay, so at the end of the alleyway, there was an empty lot and then there was the police station. It was located in the town hall. Oh, wow. So the getaway car was parked right there. She actually walked past the getaway car. And then she told the chief, they're robbing the bank. And Chief Bedford, who was known as the man who cleaned up the streets of Desdemona. So it said that Chief Bedford stood down a mob of hellraisers, gamblers, pimps, bootleggers, and extortionists, all on his own, without even so much as cocking his gun. Wow. This guy was born wearing aviator sunglasses on a police badge, right? So he just stared at these criminals, and they were like, okay, we give up. According to the stories. Wow. Yeah, that's Chief You need to do a story about him. I know, right? (laughs) So anyway, he goes, grabs one of the new shiny shotguns, which had been gifted to the PD by the local merchants as a thank you you slash incentive for keeping the town safe. Yeah. He told two of his officers to take up position in the rear of the bank. He was going to launch an attack from Main Street. The three boys headed out of the police station and over towards the bank. Now... I'm picturing this scene like the end of a Rob Zombie movie. The cops in slow motion, sun shining brightly, everything's a little bit overexposed, sunglasses on, guns at the ready, but they were actually running. (laughs) So they were running over to the bank, and as soon as the townsfolk saw that the police were running towards the bank, they shouted over, asking what's going on, to which one of the cops, again, I'm actually picturing all of the the cops shouting at the same time, Bank robbery, first national. (laughs) And with that, the word spread. Shopkeepers grabbed their pistols. Hardware store owners grabbed new rifles and shotguns and just started passing them out to people as they walked by. In the post office, the postmaster and his assistant grabbed the two government-issued service revolvers and people just took up positions in the alleyway like they had been born for this shit, all right? One thing I forgot to mention. The Bankers Association had actually offered $5,000 for every dead bank robber turned in. That's roughly $80,000 in today's money. Whoa. So anyone who happened to take down a bank robber would receive this reward. So there was even more motivation to saving the bank aside from actually saving their own money that they just put in there. Makes sense. So Santa and his elves were starting to panic. (laughs) Right? Poor Lewis Davis was almost in tears. He's like, you said we wouldn't have to do nothing like this. (laughs) Poor bastard taught these guys are professionals. He was assured they wouldn't even have to fire the guns. They were just there for show. Damn. They did apparently do a good job of keeping the alleyway clear. Like for just five guys, they kept the people held back. And they gathered up their hostages. They had two young girls aged 10 and 12. 
the two clerical workers, the cashier, Alex Spears, the teller, a Harvard student who was just back home from his Christmas break, and Oscar Cleat. <laughs> or Clyde, I honestly, it's the most Texan name ever, Oscar Clyde. But he was like a manager of the local grocers or some shit like that. And a few others. Either way, there was a total of 12 plus the four guys. They ordered Alex Spears out through the door first, figuring once the locals saw it was him, they would stop shooting. They were wrong. These people were in war mode, shooting every which way and at anything that moved. So when that door opened and Alex put his literally leaned out, he got hit in the jaw as soon as he stepped out that back door and he fell back in on top of the guys. Still alive, blood pouring out of his face. He found a pistol poking him in the ribs and Helms telling him to get back out there and get into the Buick. They wanted everyone to get in the car. All 16 of them. (laughs) When Alex was forced back out the door this time, he just put his hands up and ran off down the alleyway. (laughs) He just did his own thing. He was like, gone, fuck it, I don't care. The Harvard kid was hit with a bullet, and when they forced him into the car, he said, very calmly, I'm shot. I've got to go to the hospital. He slid across the seat of the car, opened the opposite door, got out, and walked off down the alleyway. Yeah, that was it. That was it. Santa came out using one of the women as a shield. He opened the car door and threw the potato sack full of takings in and told Frida to get in. This was the lady he was using as a shield. She didn't. She ducked and ran off around the same corner following Alex Spears. Oscar Cleat took a bullet to the heel and hit the deck. Right As soon as he stepped foot out, foot gone. He managed to drag himself to safety. And the book kind of fat shamed him a little bit. They were like, even though he was a round man, he managed to hide behind a pole. (laughs) He was safe for the rest of the shootout. The bank teller, Jewel Poe, had managed to just fuck off to safety completely unhurt. Just walked out the door and ran off. Fine. The two little girls were forced into the car, crying. So when Chief Bedford saw Santa run out into the alleyway, he started marching towards the gang. New shotgun ablazing. He fired and the shotgun jammed. Oh. He managed to clear the jam uh-huh. and started blasting as he went, but he only managed to fire one round when suddenly he was on his knees reaching for the six-shooter he had strapped to his leg when he was hit again and ended up on his back, this time not moving. Lewis made his way out the door, got hit full-on with a shotgun blast, spun around and managed to land inside the car. When Chief Bedford went down, the crowd were stunned. They stopped shooting for just enough time to let Bobby Hill get out of the bank and into the car using the other bookkeeper as a shield. She managed to run off up the alleyway too. Uh When the chief had made his advance, so did one of the officers, George Carmichael. He didn't make it very far either before he clocked around in the head and went down where he stood. So are the civilians shooting these cops by accident? Nobody knows. Because they're not shooting. There's just guns everywhere. So it had to have been. I mean, the guys were firing back. Oh, they the guys, were? Yeah, the guys were retaliating oh. by now because they had no choice. Mm. Like, they were using the hostages as human shields as they were firing over mm-hmm. their shoulders. But now, suddenly, the lads were just magically inside the car now. It was as though they blinked, and now they're here. Mm-hmm. And this all happened in seconds. 
the two police officers going down, everybody running away, scattering. And then Bobby was behind the wheel getting ready to take off with their two young hostages. Mm-hmm. So all that's in the car now is the four guys and the two young girls. Then there was someone at the driver's side window holding a shotgun point blank in Bobby's face as he was struggling to get the car started, mm. panicking. The shotgun holder pulled the trigger. <gasps> Click. Uh, what? Nothing. He pulled it twice more and got nothing again. But Bobby managed to speed off. And as Bobby was speeding off, the guy aimed the shotgun at the department store wall to see what was wrong. And it went off. Went off. Blew a hole in the side of the, of the building, apparently. As Bobby sped down the alleyway, the postman managed to shoot out one of the rear tires. And the car skidded so badly that the back door flew open and they almost lost one of their hostages. Whoa. They grabbed her and managed to close the door. And Bobby somehow kept control of the car. And they quickly gathered speed down Avenue D, followed by a gang on foot shooting at the car. Marshall broke a hole in the back window and started returning fire, while Henry shot from the passenger window while also throwing handfuls of nails on the ground. And this was a good idea, in fairness. They were roofing nails, so they have a wide base at the top, Mm -hmm. so they would land facing upwards. And the idea was to stop any cars that took chase after them. Bobby was fighting just to keep the car on the road, and they were literally veering in and out of either lane and they came so close to hitting one particular guy on the sidewalk that this dude actually got gunpowder burns on his face from a gun being fired so close to him Mm. right how fuck i don't know how that's even possible lewis lay motionless in the back seat and marshall had actually been shot in the chin now i'm not sure if he was grazed by a bullet or like had gotten a shotgun pellet to the face yeah but he was pouring blood from underneath his Santa mask. Mm-hmm. And then Bobby realized something. They had stolen the Buick with a full tank of gas. This was perfect. But then they made the trip from Wichita Falls and never thought to fill up before they got to the bank. Oh. The gas tank was empty. <gasps> 14-year-old Woodrow Harris was driving into Cisco along Avenue D in the family's new Oldsmobile. Oh, no. His grandmother was in the passenger seat and his parents were chilling in the back like a couple of pimps. All of a sudden, there's Santa Claus waving it, waving at them in the middle of the road to stop. So they do, thinking it's something for charity or something. Like, oh, no. here's Santa. The gang managed to get the family out of the car. The family run off behind the nearest house and they just hide. Okay. The gang of locals are closing in on them now. There's only a block between them and they're still shooting. Bobby is covering the others while they're shifting all the stuff from the old car to the new one, including Lewis, who was actually in shock. And Bobby takes a bullet to the arm from a rifle, a high-powered rifle. They get the bag of ammo, the bag of loot. Everything is in the car now, the bag of nails even. And when they get in, Bobby goes to start the car. Woodrow took the keys with him. (laughs) <laughs> so they're shouting at Bobby they're like just fucking hotwire it he's like I don't know how and it's a new car so and my I, arm is shot and my arm is shot and so it's a modern car it had like a steering lock and stuff even in 1927 so everyone back in the Buick oh wow <laughs> so they had no time now they grabbed their ammo and the roofing nails and they decided to leave Lewis behind he was practically dead anyway so they got back in the Buick and just struggled on back at the Oldsmobile The mob were closing in, guns blazing. The Harris family come out from their hiding place and said that they had left one behind. 
The mob were trying to decide how they were going to kill him because he was still breathing. They were trying to figure out if they should just blow his brains out now or do a good old-fashioned lynching. But the Harrises wouldn't stand for it. He was taken into custody. He was going to be questioned later. Okay. So the Harrises were good people. Uh-huh. But the lads had left something else in the Oldsmobile along with Davis. The potato sack with all of their takings from the bank uh, was sitting in the back seat. What the fuck? It was brought straight back to the bank and deposited as if it had never fucking happened. And Lewis did wake up long enough to tell them who he was, but he didn't rat on his friends, even in his like sorry state. He just said they had picked him up on the way in and he needed money. Chief Bedford also managed to give a statement. He was clearly not very coherent, but he said it was no man that shot me, but a woman with blonde hair. What the fuck? He was delusional. Oh, okay. But he was the chief of police and had such a, like, reputable record as, you know, this fucking lawman. He's reliable, yeah. Yeah. So this just birthed rumors of a non-existent lady bank robber and people went nuts with the stories they were thinking like oh here's this sexy new fucking bunny to our clyde you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. so sent people on a wild goose chase newspapers were printing this story like so crazy dumb. the lads had managed to get away and they were headed for the hills like literally marshall was still pouring blood from his chin And when one of the little hostage girls heard him lifting his Santa mask to check it out, she had to have a little peek. Now, Marshall caught her and he hit her in the head with the butt of his gun. But (laughs) gently. (laughs) Okay, so like he wasn't a bad guy, but he did hit this 10 year old little girl in the head with his gun. That kind of sounds like Rick at Ralph where he's where they go to like a a, sort of like an a support group for bad guys. (laughs) Yeah, they're tired of being bad guys like and Satan's like. I'm a bad guy, but I'm not a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. He's kind of like the anti-hero. Like. But it was worth getting a little bump on the head because the reason why Marshall knew about the first national bank in Cisco is because he had grown up there. He knew almost everyone and almost everyone knew Shut him. Shut the fuck up. In fact... The little girl that had peeked under his mask... Was his neighbor. Her mom had bought a cafe from Marshall's mom. And Marshall used to eat there regularly. What? Well, So this little girl had served him his meals, like, countless times. Wow. And, random fun fact, Alex Spears, the cashier from the bank, had actually signed Marshall's bail bond when he was released from prison the last time. Whoa. That's how well he knew him. Hence why he was so happy to have the Santa suit. Ah. Anyway, the guys drove the Buick down some dirt roads and eventually just drove into the brush. Like they were like, fuck it. Let's just drive off the road as far as this car will take us. And eventually the car got stuck. So they told the two little girls lie down on the floor and cover their eyes. Well, they fucked off. They're like, we'll be watching from the bushes. <laughs> so, and the girls believed them. Yeah. They were I mean, they're terrified. little. Yeah. yeah. So they lay there and covered their eyes and counted. Yeah. Basically. But the guys left behind all their food this time. So now, like all the groceries that fucking Midge Tellet had bought for them. Yeah. So now they're just huffing it. 
through the hills of fucking West Texas. Yeah. So now it's for the girls, though. Yeah, the food's for the girls. Yeah. Yeah. But they hiked on, and Bobby was in such a bad way that he just passed out after a while. Like, literally just hit the fucking deck. He was bleeding so much. Yeah, and he was in shock. And the only reason why he even came back around was because Marshall actually poured iodine directly on the wound. Which, I mean, is the right thing to do, but the burning woke him up. Uh So they tried to patch him up as best they could. And as they were there, they could hear a search party heading their way. Mm -hmm. Like, they had literally, like, fucking left the trail the whole way. Like, just this bare fucking... Well, yeah, into the bushes, probably the blood, but, like, even just a bare tire on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Or wheel. So the noise of the voices would ebb and flow as these search party like zigzagged around trying to file the tra- find the trail of the bandits and this went on until dark but the guys managed to avoid the mob and remember there's just the three of them now bobby marshall and henry the search was a mess just a bunch of good old texas boys hoping to split the fifteen thousand dollar reward but eight sheriffs had joined up and in the spirit of the story one of the sheriffs accidentally discharged his weapon managed to shoot himself in the leg and blow off two of his fingers in the process. So just another casualty added to the list. Yeah. Lewis died from his injuries, leaving his young family fatherless, and Chief Bit Bedford, too, died mm-hmm. that evening, meaning that one or all of the gang were now wanted for murdering a law, Uh-oh. which is what they used to call policemen. Yeah. He's like, you killed a law. Um, and that night... The weather went from typical warm Texas winter to almost 30 degrees. So Bobby and Henry snuck back to Cisco to steal a new car because they were still unknown. They managed to get it easy enough, like it was a quiet, nice little neighborhood. And they came back and picked up Marshall and used the back roads all night to drive to a pasture, which they had already picked out as their, like, lay low spot. Like, yeah. yeah. And... They laid low until the following night and then they headed back to Lewis's sister's place after midnight. So it's now officially Christmas Eve and they were cold, hungry and injured. Lewis's sister fixed them up with food and redressed Bobby's wound and then they headed back to their hidden pasture. Hidden pasture sounds like what they would call vaginas in Bible songs. I guess. (laughs) To me, that's her hidden pasture. So... Lewis's sister was visited by the police at 11 a.m. on Christmas morning and she didn't tell them a whole lot of anything, but she headed for Wichita Falls as soon as they left. Like literally they went out the door and she started panicking. She was like, I've got to go back up there to my brother's funeral. Yeah. But the guys had also given her instructions for when she got there. So when she got there, she met Henry's pregnant wife and told her what had happened. Oh, she also met Midge Tellett, who she didn't tell exactly what had happened, as far as I know, anyway, because Midge's whole thing was pleading ignorance. Yeah. But Midge did arrange to head back to the sister's house that night with a doctor and a nurse who also didn't have any information. They just knew that they were going to help someone. Interesting. Yeah. They thought it was just a, a really cool adventure. And the doctor drove and they split a bottle of moonshine all the way down. What the fuck? Yeah. Was... They must be really bored back in the day. Oh, it was like 
this doctor thought he was the tits, like him and just two ladies driving through the night, <laughs> splitting a bottle of fucking bathtub to gin. Be, or like to, it has to be said, Midge is such a ride or die. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Except for poor Freeman, but you know, whatever. Yeah, she's a ride or die, but not for her man. <laughs> yeah, like maybe Freeman was just too boring for her. Maybe. Yeah, that's a that's interesting. Yeah, you you spin a you sp- you weave a interesting tale. <laughs> So they made it almost the whole way mm-hmm. with the directions that Miss Elgin had, Lewis's sister, had given them. Okay. But then they got a little bit lost. And they were also a little bit tipsy oh and in God. very high spirits. So Christ. the doctor was trying to read a map or like written directions. I couldn't. It was some old fashioned magazine that like just would guide people. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But because... The Elgin lease or the Elgin property was kind of out of the way. Mm. It wasn't exactly in this guide. Interesting. So they're standing under the streetlight of like some government building in a town near enough to the place. When, as luck would have it, a car came driving towards them. The doctor asked the driver if he knew where the Elgin lease was. And he said, yeah, but it's pretty late. Like, are they expecting you? And the doctor told him it was an emergency. I'm a doctor. So the chap said, okay, follow me, and off they went. The man brought them right to the door of the Elgin household and waited there to make sure they got in okay because he was still kind of like sketchy, you know what I mean? He was like, well, I'm bringing these guys here in the middle of the night. I want to make sure that they're not here to rob the house or something. Oh, I see. But when Robbie Elgin, Lewis's Uh brother-in-law, answered the door and the doctor introduced himself and Midge and the nurse... Then the stranger introduced himself from his car. <laughs> Sheriff Orion Biggs Whoa. of Shackleford County. What? And he then announced that they were all three under arrest as accessories after the fact for the armed robbery of the First National Bank of Cisco and the murder of Chief of Police Bid Bedford. So he knew all this. He, he knew what yeah. was going on as soon as he drove past them. Absolutely. How? Like, he didn't know that they were anything to do with it. But as soon as they mentioned the Elgins, he knew that there was a connection between oh. uh, Lewis and his sister. And just thought, this is a bit, you this know. This is a lead if you're going to the Elgins. Exactly. Okay. And he was technically out of his jurisdiction. So the arrest that he made, if they had known, mm-hmm. they could have challenged it in court and it might have fallen apart. But as far as they knew, they were under arrest. And they all got taken in. Dang. Around the same time as Midge and the doctor and the nurse were heading down from Wichita Falls, the guys had been driving through the backgrounds in their stolen Ford when they realized there was a car with a spotlight ahead checking the fields on either side of the road as they went. This search party was now covering the whole county. Whoa. They ripped a U-turn and drove back the way that they had come, but when the other car saw this random car doing a Yui in the middle of the fucking road they chased them and the other car was far faster than this open window Ford and was soon catching up but the guys saw a turn and Henry was the one driving so he saw the turn but couldn't slow down in time turned in sent the car through a ditch through a fence fucked it up completely and turned out the lights turned out to be the best thing that could have happened because the other car drove straight past them on the chase (gasps) Still thinking that they were on the road in front of them. So they lost them. They lost them, but they lost their car. So they went on to a house and woke the owner saying they had had a car wreck and they need like their wife was in the car and they need to take her to the hospital. 
Like she's not having a baby or anything. They told them that she had the jaundice. So she was like dying with a fever and like they needed to take her to the yeah. thing. And, and she's the guy, yellow. And she's yellow. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like a Lego man. <laughs> she's Marge. Yeah. Turns out the dude's son was actually out with the car. You know, young teenager out just having a time. So they just waited until he came back. And then they stole the car and the boy. <gasps> the dude's dad was like, get back here with my son. Fired a shotgun off. Uh-huh. Hit his son. <gasps> now he was fine, but he still fucked up his arm. And it turns out all this was going on. Henry had actually made it back to the Elgin household in this new car with Carl, their new friend. The son. The son. He snuck out the back door as the sheriff arrested the others at the front door. Okay. The doctor, the nurse, Robbie and Midge. They were all being arrested. Henry watched it from the other side of the house. Oh, okay. Okay. So he managed to slip out the back with two oranges. That was all that was left from the Christmas Day presents. Yeah, yeah. Robbie had given him two oranges. That was all the food they had to split between the three of them. They did offer Carl some. But Carl said he had had a big supper and he was just more concerned about getting his daddy's new car back on time. Mm-hmm. This search, like I said, it had gotten insane at this point. Cars on every fucking road. Yeah. There were even planes just flying low in the sky, looking out for them. Mm-hmm. And they had nowhere to go. They kept Carl and his daddy's Dodge for a couple of days. And then they stole another Ford and let Carl go. The reason why I keep naming the type... the type of cars is because the Fords that they were getting were all old junkers mm. whereas the Dodge is brand new the Oldsmobile was brand new and the Buick was all brand new so they were like in those cars they were golden mm-hmm. but every time they stole a new car to get away in it was a fucking piece of shit yeah so they let Carl go mm-hmm. they thanked him for his services and they told him now don't tell anybody <laughs> <laughs> but obviously he went straight to the police this sounds like some brother where art thou shit literally yeah I'm picturing like George Clooney as fucking Marshall Ratliff um, I'm, I'm picturing Marshall the squirrel from Animal Crossing oh, this well. whole time <laughs> when you were like and then he put on the Santa suit and in my head he's wearing a Santa suit now yeah. he's just a good old Texan squirrel he's just a tiny squirrel yeah At this point, like I said, Carl obviously went to the police station and told them. So a blockade was set up at South Bend because this is where the road crossed the Brazos River and headed for Wichita Falls. Okay. So like, we'll cut them off the pass. And the boys at this stage as well were like at the point of delirium. Like Marshall was just in the back of the car, almost comatose, just mumbling between being like his chin fucking hanging off he was starving he was exhausted it had been freezing cold for the last few nights and the only shelter they had was a car with no fucking windows yeah bobby and henry are the brains of the operation at this very point in time so the next morning the guys drive straight into this blockade on the street there they take a hard left and there they see two cars parked across the 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 street they pulled into a gas station uh, because they can't see any people. So they're like, are these two cars just sitting there randomly? Mm-hmm. And as they're trying to suss it out, two people come running out from the gas station, guns drawn, and the guys book a U-turn and just head back the way they came. But they know that these other cars are much faster than theirs. Mm-hmm. So they're like, right, we need to get off the road. So they drove a mile on pavement 
and then just hit the sand and drove until they came to a dead end, which wasn't very far. There was a fence and an open field that had some trees about 100 yards from where the cars had stopped. And the posse now was advancing on foot. They, the guys had jumped off the running boards of the car mm-hmm. and were literally just closing in, shooting guns, shooting pistols, shotguns, whatever they had, just raining bullets on the boys in the stolen Ford. So they had to make a break for the trees. They bolted out of the car. Marshall turned back to shoot and hold off the others, but he wasn't quick enough. As he turned around, a shotgun took him down. The other two had no choice but to leave him behind and keep running. Mm-hmm. They both got shot by the same shotgun, but they managed to keep the posse at bay. And when the others got to Marshall's limp body, they kind of just lost interest in the other two. They were like, oh my God, we got one. So the guys had enough time to get away into the wildlands of Brazos. Now it said, I don't know what that looks like now. I'm assuming it's still rough country. Mm -hmm. But back then it was like nuts. And the two guys didn't have a clue where they were. They're not from this neck of the woods. Literally. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Marshall was still alive and thankfully a sheriff was there to have him taken with care to the sanitarium to get him like all wrapped up and held for questioning because everybody else was just thinking, we're going to get $5,000. Yeah. (laughs) But the reason why they knew that all three guys had been shot by the same gun was because that gun happened to be shot by a peace officer who couldn't claim the $5,000. And the sheriff knew that. So that's how he managed to convince them all to leave the poor body alone and get it taken away. Mm -hmm. The search went on for another few days and it was awful. And so many times Henry and Bobby were almost caught. Yeah. At one point, they heard the guys coming. They ran and hid under a rock outcropping only to hear the guys searching for them standing on top of the rock. Go, well, I reckon they've been through here sometime recent. And the two guys are lying under the rock, shivering, trying not to make noise, like even like chattering their teeth. Yeah. They managed to avoid search planes and everything. One of the planes going past did see them and made like a double take back. So they knew they'd been seen. And by the time the guy made his report back to the sheriff, the guys were gone again. Right. They were eventually caught in the town of Graham, wandering around half dead, barely able to speak from their injuries, their lack of sleep and their hunger. Bobby tried to put up a fight but the sheriff that arrested him at this point was like, come on, dude, like you've got nothing left. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> yeah, just give up. And so he did. Marshall Ratliff was sentenced to 99 years for armed robbery on January 27th, 1928. Nobody had actually seen him holding guns at the bank. Henry Helms was sentenced to death on February 21st for the murder of Bit Bedford, chief of police. Multiple witnesses had seen him with a gun in each hand shooting in the alleyway. Then Bobby Hill was sentenced on March 20th to 99 years for armed robbery. He had told his whole sorry life story. And even though he had ultimately just resigned himself to this fate, he was so totally shocked that he didn't get the chair that he was elated with his, I got two nines. (laughs) That's how he put it when he finally got the sentence. Yeah. But he was just totally shocked that he didn't get the chair. Yeah, I mean, he killed a law. Possibly killed a law. Mm -hmm. So too were the people of Texas shocked. Two lawmen had been killed. And so they were owed at least two lives in return. This was the logic of the time. Still is a lot of the time. So Marshall was brought back in and found guilty of the murder of 
Chief Bit Bedford and Officer George Carmichael. And Marshall told prison staff and fellow death row inmates alike, I'll never ride old Sparky. And he never did. So while he and Helms were awaiting the chair, another in- inmate came in and told him his plan. This guy had it figured out. This guy's lawyer had found the loophole saying that they couldn't carry out the death sentence on a prisoner who was found not to be sound of mind. So that guy went to the chair pretending to be insane. But Helms figured he'd learned from this guy's mistake and that he would win his insanity plea. Mm. He didn't. On September 5th, 1929, he ordered his last meal. Cabbage and sausage, but he requested that his wife make it because she knows how he likes it. <laughs> so strange. I know. And this, You said this is Helms? Yeah, this is Helms. Mm-hmm. He ordered tomatoes from a can or fresh. Didn't matter. I don't know how like he wanted them prepared. He ordered coffee and a slice of whatever pie they had. Nettie, his wife, didn't get the chance to cook his meal for him. And Henry asked the guard to give Marshall the pie. He didn't give Marshall the pie. Because Marshall didn't have a jaw. No, he he was fine. Well, he had recovered to the point where he could eat. It only took 10 days of recovery before he could eat solid foods again. When the guards came to collect Henry that evening, he fought all the way to the chair. This man was scared. But finally, he sat in Old Sparky on September 6th and gave no final words. This is the same old Sparky that me and you saw in the museum. That's what I was going to say. Like, yeah. we, we've seen him. We've seen that exact chair. So after that night, Marshall changed and turned into a glum, scripture babbling thing, right? Mm-hmm. Trying for an insanity plea or having genuinely suffered from a breakdown at the loss of his friend, we'll never know. His mother did file an insanity plea on his behalf. And to the outrage of both the courts and the public, he was transferred to the Eastland County Jail, where he was going to be monitored by the trusty head warden, Pack Kilborn. This was October 24th, 1929. He was guided to his cell. Like, literally, he was almost completely catatonic. The guys carried him like a drunk man, like his feet dragging on the ground. The jailers had to sit him up in bed and hold him sitting up and hold his head so it didn't loll to the side. But as they fed him, once the food was in his mouth, he knew like automatically to chew and swallow. But then when he was done, they would let go of him and he would just flop down on the bed and stay in that position until the next morning when they moved him. Okay? So if he was playing... He was a damn good actor. Damn good actor. Shitty Santa, though. Shitty Santa. But they tested him one night. They picked him up and held him in midair and said... We're Let's just try in. this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He fell flat on his face. No hands out to stop him or anything. And the warden said to his assistant jailer, Uncle Tom, we better be careful next time. Wink. Now, Uncle, jo- Uncle Tom Jones had reportedly poked him in the eyes, pricked him with pins and even burned him with cigarettes. Never was there a reaction. The only time they ever got him to do anything was when they put food in his mouth and he chewed and swallowed. That was it. They would then drag him to his chamber pot and wait until he pissed. So his basic human functions were still there. He still mumbled random scripture and even spoke in Latin quietly at times. They don't know where he learned this. But he had Pac and Uncle Tom and all of the other inmates fucking freaked out. 
His poor mother was totally distraught. And then he just lay in bed, completely unresponsive for 25 straight days. On November 18th, after Uncle Tom and Pack fed him, they went about their business, locking up the rest of the place. And on their way back down the stairs, they were attacked. It was Marshall. He was awake and he had a gun. The guards had left the cell open after they fed him this one night. And Marshall just seemed to wake up at the right moment. This weird fucking half comatose state that he was in just vanished and he was alive again. He made his way down to the office and got a gun out of the drawer. He checked the gun to see if it was loaded. It was. It was a six shooter and he dropped a bullet out of it. But in his like fucking weird confused state, he just locked it and went back. And he was now pointing this gun at Pack. He fired it and somehow missed at short range. But Uncle Tom came running when he heard the shot. And Uncle Tom got shot three times at least at point blank range. He then staggered back and fell down a short set of stairs, down the landing and onto the office floor. Pack, in the meantime, had done a run around the cell like uh, landing Mm -hmm. and tackled Marshall. And in the struggle, they both fell down on top of Uncle Tom and broke his fucking leg. All right. So the guy's lying there bleeding out. Now he's got a fucking broken leg. Pack managed to get the pistol off of Marshall, put the barrel to his head and pulled the trigger. Five shots had been fired from that six shooter. Mm-hmm. But there was only five bullets in it. Mm-hmm. So again, Marshall got away. Yeah. Fucking almost got clean. The gun just clicked and Pack proceeded to beat the ever living shit out of him until Marshall was there literally begging for his life. Pack's daughter who lived on the other side of the jailhouse in like a separate living facility. She had heard the gunshots and gone and gotten help. She literally fired her own gun into the air to get help to come. Uncle Tom was brought to the hospital in critical condition and Marshall went back to his cell. Pack was even more convinced now that he was genuinely crazy because he just turned off again. And he had seen his eyes when he was trying to kill them. Yeah. And he was like, no, there's something fucking wrong with this yeah, guy. Yeah. But Uncle Tom was a well-known person around town. He was like quite well to do and he was only really assistant jailer for like a hobby. It wasn't like he needed the money or anything. So he was well known and well thought of. And word soon got out that he was in a bad way and it was all because of Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. So a crowd gathered outside the prison on November 19th. It started off just people waiting for news of Tom's well-being and people waiting to hear what was going to happen to Santa. After like nine o'clock in the morning, Pack went outside. He's like, do you people have no jobs to go to? And the people were like, yeah, our bosses are sent us down here so we can report back with news. Yeah. And as it happened, there were multiple transfers happening from the jail that day. And this left Pack being the only guard on duty because Uncle Tom was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So by eight o'clock that night, the crowd had turned into a mob of almost a thousand people chanting, we want Santa Claus over and over again and pack thought there was nothing else he could do he had to go outside and address them try and disperse them but even though the latest news from the hospital was that uncle tom was actually conscious and doing quite well pack tried to speak sense into this mob but eventually they grabbed him they took the keys and stormed the jail screaming we want santa claus they eventually found him and said look what we done got santa claus (laughs) 
They dragged Marshall from his cell, naked, kicking and screaming. They bet lumps out of him. The whole way, everybody was taking a swing at him, kicking him. And trigger warning here because it only gets worse. They dragged him to the town square, tied him up. He was barely conscious from the beating that he had just received. And the men called for a noose. The crowd was now 2,000 strong. Men, women and children. People lined the streets in their cars trying to get a good viewpoint. Marshall's mouth was moving and he was trying to speak. The crowd hushed and listened. But the man who leaned in heard only Marshall's religious mumbling and told the crowd, Hell, he's just talking religion. They put the noose around his neck and the ringleader shouted, Anyone who wants a part in this, get your hands on that rope. And when the order went out to pull, they pulled so hard and so fast that Marshall was lifted up into the air at a swing that snapped the rope, sending him crashing back down to the ground. Still alive, he had fallen probably a good 20-30 feet with his hands tied behind his back. They got a new rope and the call for participants was raised again. It said that fathers had their young sons join in in this justice and they all held the rope again, waiting for the orders. Marshall tried to speak one more time, but it was just more prayers. They pulled on the rope and his last words were, forgive me. A silence fell over the crowd and they waited until they were sure it was over. Then they cheered and laughed. Santa Claus was finally dead and he never did ride old Sparky. So the only survivor was Bobby. Mm -hmm. After all this, Bobby escaped from prison about four fucking times. While all of this was going on, he had borrowed a suit off another prisoner, escaped in like his Sunday best. And eventually the governor had words with him and just said, Bobby, this needs to stop or I am going to kill you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He shawshanked him. Yeah. And so he lived out the rest of his days peacefully enough in Huntsville prison. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if like they have plaques with their names on them because you know how we saw that wall of people that have been detained in Huntsville. They did. I actually read about the Santa Claus bank robbery in Huntsville Museum. Oh, and that's where you got the idea? No, I already knew about it. I was just saving it for Christmas. Oh. Yeah, since last year. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there you go, guys. There's this, the the Santa Claus bank robbery. Holy shit, man. Yep. So I hope you all enjoyed I know I did. The book actually that I used for reference was The Santa Claus Bank Robbery by A.C. Green. There was one other book written about it at least, but that focused on the made-up blonde lady. Oh. So I think it was like a kind of a novel, a historic novel maybe. Yeah. But yeah, definitely worth a read if you like super mundane, very specific facts. (laughs) Yeah, this book is full of them. But um, yeah. And I think that's it. Awesome. Happy New Year, everybody. Good job, Adam. And uh, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Good. I was like enthralled. The whole time. It was just one fucking thing after another. Oh, man. Like, honestly, like, I feel like had they never decided to do this, they wouldn't have had to have endured literally hell. For nothing. For nothing. And the one thing that I actually even left out, I think, was all the takings that they had from the bank that they did leave behind. Mm-hmm. 
it uh, came out to like 12 grand. But like, think about it. Like, literally the hell they endured before they even got captured. Oh, right? yeah. And then the hell that Marshall had to endure. And, well, they all did because, well, maybe not Bobby. Because <laughs> yeah, like Bobby. To, compared to the rest of them, he got off pretty well. Yeah. But like Helms, he lived in hell knowing that he was going to die and he was scared and marshall i mean it speaks for itself the hell that he lived as soon as he decided to do this his hell literally began yeah and like it i thought it was really interesting that all three of them were openly terrified of the chair from the get-go like you know like in these old stories it's all like they can do whatever they want like once i'm dead i'm dead but no, these guys were genuinely afraid for their lives. Yeah. And it's also worth noticing, noting that Helms was doing it for his young family, as was Lewis. Lewis yeah. was just another fucking sad case. He didn't even make yeah. it out of the bank, barely. Yeah. And he wasn't even supposed to be there. He was only there because the other guy called out sick. Yeah. You know? Anyway. <laughs> called out sick. Yeah. But there you go, guys. Thank you all for listening. Um, our Patreon is on pause as of right now until further notice. And... Follow us on YouTube for hopefully some cool videos in the very near future. And Instagram, Facebook, that's it. That's all we got. Yeah. All right. See you guys next week. Okay, bye. Bye. I guess. No, what's the word? Like concentrating on something else. So I can't Preoccupied? Do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ.